Welcome to Israel War Briefing, a podcast from the Jewish Chronicle offering deep insight into the crisis in the Jewish state as it continues to unfold. I'm Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle and author of Israelophobia, the newest version of the oldest hatred and what to do about it. In each episode, I'll be asking an expert commentator for their analysis of the latest developments and reflections on what comes next. It's now Friday the 10th of November, the 34th day of the war. Today I'm joined by the Associate Editor of The Spectator, author and commentator Douglas Murray, who's coming from us from the Gaza border. How far is the Gaza border from where you are now, Douglas? Best uh, not to say. Okay, okay. Well, some some distance from the Gaza border in, in Israel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Douglas, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, it must be strange for you being there in the heat of the action, where the place that everyone's talking about, um, and seeing the debate about marches and flags and stickers and Suela Bravman in Britain. How's being there changed your perspective on, on, on the debate? Well, it hasn't particularly changed my perspective on the debate back home in Britain. Uh, I've said since the beginning of this conflict that, you know, it seems to me, you know, Israel has its problems and we could talk about that till the cows come home. Uh, it has its own challenges, but Israel can look after those challenges. That's the job of the government, that's the job of the idea and others. And the deed of the Israeli people. Uh, but we in Britain have our own problems. And the question is can we look after them? Can our government, Britain, address our problems? Can the British people rally to address our problems? Because I think that our problems have become very clear in uh, last month if they weren't before. So I'm not worried about Israel. Israel can look after itself. I'm worried about Britain. I'm worried about Britain. It's funny, I've, I've heard uh, and myself have experienced Israelis saying to people here in the UK and also in the States, you know, we're OK, we'll get through this. But how are you? How are you going to deal with what's happening there? Well, you know, I mean, many, many years ago now, I remember I was at a uh, conference in, uh, in Berlin with various Israelis and British and German and other European EU politicians. And I remember there was a sort of, I, I can't remember how long it is after an event that you're allowed to break Chatham House rules, but let me just assume that there was a representative who said to an Israeli, you know, it's very, you know, it's troubling the next time, you know, you're going to have another Gaza thing. You know, the problem is we might have violence on our streets. And I said to this person in front of everyone else, I said, you have just done something utterly shameful. You have said to an ally that they effectively may not be able to operate as they want to operate and need to operate in their own interests because you don't have control of your streets or you might lose control of your streets. That's, that's a shame on you. Hmm. Uh, I mean, imagine if the Israelis or the Germans or anyone else said, no, look, the British government, you've got to do you know, certain things or not do certain things because if uh, uh, if you do do them, we're going to have trouble on our streets in Tel Aviv and so on. Sorry, that's your problem. Uh, so yes, I'm very worried that, 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 that what is being exposed in this is problems in Britain. Uh, it's the British police who are exposed as being a problem. It's the British cabinet who 
exposes having trouble. It's the shadow cabinet that's exposed as having trouble. And this has nothing to do with Israel. It has to do with a very, very serious set of challenges on our own streets. And, you know, we've been through this really difficult era with Met Police in particular, who I have some sympathy with because they sort of can't ever get anything right. Mm. Um, you know, there was a G20 protest many years ago in London, or 12, 15, 13 years ago in London, where a poor homeless guy was bludgeoned by the police and died. And if you remember, there was a massive thing about police overreaction, and then the London riots broke out, and the police didn't step in, and then people were being killed on the streets because the police weren't there to protect them. Yeah. And and then we get the Sarah Everard protest, where it seems Met, Met police are amazing, crack squad at arresting mourning women at a candlelit <laughs> vigil. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant at getting in there, getting getting in. And that's two of them damages in the end. Yeah, and then. When it comes to people chanting jihad, jihad, intifada on the British streets, the Metropolitan Police stand back. So they have this very weird problem going on. But uh, this is an example, I and mean, I said this the other day, but you know, you look at the, the attack on the Rugby Venus of Velasquez in the National Gallery. Uh, these maniacs stop, just stop oil protesters, taking hammers to a priceless work of art. And you think, we are in a stage in Britain where the body politic, the civic society, seems so, so immunocompromised that almost anything can come in and cause us damage. Mm. And I've argued um, consistently in, in my book, is Israelophobia, but also more recently, that it's not fundamentally illegitimate or bad. <laughs> to raise and fly the Palestinian flag or campaign for the Palestinians. Sure. And that, and that as, as we've seen in recent weeks with the way in which Israeli Arabs have really developed this, this patri patriotic um, uh, support for Israel, Islam itself is not the problem. Do you agree with those two positions? Well, I mean, it's uh, the first one on the Palestinian flag. I mean... Look, we now have, we've got, we've seen, I'm sure you've seen the advice given out to protesters to make sure they effectively support Hamas without supporting Hamas or um, chant within the limits of the law. Okay. Mm, I think it's very telling protesters need to have this advice because it suggests they want to go a lot further than they've gone. Um, you know, I'm very wary about the whole sort of people who turn out from Palestinians in any situation, I have to say, because I think I'm just intensely suspicious of the whole debate around it. I don't believe the most of the Muslim marches, uh, most of the non-Muslim marches are really bothered by the Palestinian people. I, I don't see any love for the Palestinian people that my travels in the Middle East. The Jordanians don't care for them. Egyptians don't care for them, Lebanese don't care for them, the Saudis don't care for them, none of them care for Palestinian people. The I mean, idea that even in Britain, protesters didn't care for them when they were being bombed by Assad. It's not no, about so much as no, the And, and the idea that this is about the, the Ummah is ridiculous. It's a, it's a fictitious concept. The 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 um, government of Pakistan is in the process of forcibly deporting two million 
billion people from Pakistan to Afghanistan. I'm sorry, I don't believe these people who say we're just worried about these people because they're fellow Muslims. No, they don't. They don't care at all about their fellow Muslims. Their fellow Muslims are killed all the time in Yemen, Syria, by other Muslims, are deported in Pakistan. That you know, you, you don't get these people turning out other than for this thing of Palestinian cause. And the Palestinian cause is, in my view, simply not the Palestinian cause. It's an anti-Israel cause. And unfortunately, um, lots of anti-Semites have been reported in Europe in recent decades. I mean, you look at the march through Berlin the other day, you know, post-war Germany seemed to me there weren't any, there wasn't any particular dearth of anti-Semites in Germany. Um, but they import a lot of people who are anti-Semitic in a, in, a, in a relatively new way for Germany. And I think that's Germany's tragedy. Uh, but no, so the first thing, I don't think that the Palestinian cause is, I don't think that people don't get honest about what they're, they're saying. I mean, I, I, think that, I think that certainly the context in which people have been raising the Palestinian flag now has been quite different to the one, uh, to, in, in some cases, to the one before, because they were raising it the, the, pretty much the day of the massacres. Before... I, 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 went to the, I went to the protest in Times Square to cover it, the day yeah. of the massacre. They're all flying the Palestinian flag. I'm sorry, this, is, this isn't, this isn't uh, support for the Palestinian people. And also, you know, my view is that the Palestinians were offered a state so many times and, you know, they've rejected it so many times. And I, I, I mean, yeah, sure, it's legal to fly the Palestinian flag, and it should be. But we can also read into it what we would, you know. And it's being used as a, as a proxy for the Hamas flag sometimes. On yeah, the of course it is. Of course it is. And the people wrapping the air around that sort of um, terrorist sheet. Um, as for your second question about Islam, well, you know, I have my views on Islam, but they're not going to be shared by everyone. I just like would like to see Muslims more visibly able to not go nuts when Israel simply defends its own people. And, you know, that's their problem. I mean, you know, it's their problem that the, the, the one Jewish state in the world defending itself makes these so many people so enraged but that's that's their problem I, I don't need to tell them you know about that i would rather that you know we weren't in a situation in countries like ours but we are and mm. um, but i refuse to have my opinions as it were uh, constricted or prescribed by 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 the just the, the realities that most people, including most politicians, cannot admit. I mean, I mean uh, sorry. No, at, at any one time in politics, there is a sort of, you know, well, of course, everyone knows that, but we can't say it. Okay, fine, but I'm not a politician, so I can say it. Yeah. I mean, there was some polling recently which showed that 4% of Muslims in Britain would support a terror attack. 83% mm -hmm. wouldn't. And that's good and encouraging. Four percent is still one hundred and sixty thousand people, um, but I think that it would be nice to see chance of free Palestine from Hamas. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I this is this is you know this is I mean, where were the protests in two thousand six when Hamas took over in Gaza and killed all the Fatah people, threw them off rooftops? 
Yeah. I mean, where are the protests in Britain or anywhere else about the fact that Mahmoud Abbas, the allegedly, you know, moderate ally for peace, hasn't put himself up for election in how many years now? I mean, you know, where are the protests about this? Uh, um, uh, there's just an incredibly um, low-resolution, simplistic view of everything that has dominated. And as I say, I think that the anti-Semitism exists always. I think it's ineradicable. I've written about this quite a lot. I think anyone who says, we, you know, we must destroy it once and for all doesn't know what they're talking about. And, um, you know, I think that... Oh, I'm sorry. We can edit that out. My phone is not in um, bleeping. Um, uh, yeah, if um, so, that was the last train of thought. What was I saying? Um, You're saying that we can't eradicate and send. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, sorry. This I said it. Um, I, I think that anyone who says you know we want to eradicate anti-Semitism once and for all just clearly knows nothing about anti-Semitism. Yeah. But in my view, you know, a lot of people don't realize what they're suffering from in terms of this. And they find anti-Israel sentiment a very fine valve, release valve, all of the unhappiness and envy and hatreds in their own life. I mean, you know, it's, it seems obvious to me. It's a, it's a pathology. I don't need to tell you. It's a pathology, and it's one that exists in large numbers of people. I'm very sorry about that. Muslim and not. Now, I don't know if you saw uh, Brett Stevens' column this week in the New York Times where he talked about how um, after 9-11 in Langley, the CIA HQ, there was a sign on the wall saying every day is September the 12th. Yes, yes. yes. Um, and he was saying that for, for Jewish people, every day from now on is October the 8th. <clears throat> what lessons are the main lessons do you think that we're beginning to learn both in Britain and around the world from October the 7th that will change, that will be that game changer? Or, or, or what lessons do you think we should learn? I mean, the Israelis are obviously in the process of learning a lot of lessons, and they're trying to, they're trying to, I think they're putting off what the lessons are until they've won the war, because it's very hard to sort of sit down and cogitate when you're fighting the war. Um, but obviously, I mean, there are lots of lessons from the state of take, perhaps of reliance on tech, over-reliance on tech, um, being one of many, but you know, as I say, there's, there's a war going on. It's, it's not the time to work that out here. Everyone's got views, so be amazed to hear <laughs> everyone in Israel has views. Um, what the lessons are outside Israel, I would think, among others, uh, a lot of Jews will have been, have been, I know, genuinely shocked by the lack of empathy. Um, it didn't last even a day. Um, I think that's. I think that's going to have an impact. My friend Norman Horowitz some years ago wrote a book called "Why Are Jews Liberal?" Um, why they vote Democrat in America, and um, as you know, one of the most interesting developments in recent years in, uh, in polling shifts in the UK has been the shift of. Um, Jewish, um, tiny number of Jews in Britain, of course, it's not significant electorally, but it's a very interesting phenomenon that Jews in Britain have gone from, in the last 20 years from voting left to voting right, from voting Labour to voting Conservative. And it's a very important development. Uh, I suspect in America there will be a similar shift actually because of the realization of uh, 
just how much hatred is out there. Uh, I think a lot of Jews are going uh, are, that I speak to are very concerned on multiple fronts. I mean, uh, you know, Israel is an answer to uh, problems that the Jewish people have suffered for millennia, and many people hope it was sort of the answer. At least Jews can look after themselves and protect themselves and fight for themselves. This is a very, very important um, thing indeed. Now, you know, I've known enough people who've made Aliyah in recent years from France and Britain and other parts of Europe because they see rising anti-Semitism in these countries. I think it's a deep shame for each of these countries, but that is that is something that has happened. I think there is a terrible trauma still going on that that the seventh of October the Jewish state could not protect the Jews, um, and I, I think that many people don't realize. I still think many people don't realize quite how massive the assault was. Um, around four thousand terrorists I mean, spilled through. This 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 was a battalion sized act. Uh, and remember, of course, a battalion-sized attack on such brave targets as a music festival and left-wing kibbutz and peacenik households and much more. And um, uh, I, I think that much of the world still hasn't realized the just sheer enormity in a country the size of Israel that almost everybody here has... Um, been going from funeral to funeral, shiver to shiver, and um, and that's going to go on for a while. And in Britain, it's been there's been a fascinating. I'm just having a look here. Here we are. A message that I received from an old university friend of mine, who wrote, got back in touch after many years, and she writes, "Jake, I'm sorry for unfriending you on Facebook when you went to work for the Daily Mail." I thought you'd gone off the rails. I'm eating my words now. Ah. I think that it feels like this is a clarifying moment for British politics as well, whereby the left is radicalising itself so much, not necessarily the Parliamentary Labour Party, but the grassroots is becoming so radicalised, not just in terms of anti-Semitism, but also in terms of gender ideology and colonialism and all the rest of it. But yeah. this is this is the worst, supporting or condoning or turning a blind eye towards genocide is a low that I think is ejecting sensible people from the left who are becoming politically homeless. Yeah, I mean, you know, I have my own political views, but I perfectly well respect the views of others. I don't expect everyone to agree with me and um, I don't expect everyone to become conservative, a small C or um, you know, right wing or anything like that. You know, I just think that there will be a lot of people who will be amazed at what their allies have been doing. I mean, take, I was talking about this with somebody here this morning, take an example like, why are the protesters turning up outside Marks and Spencer's? Why? What has Marks and Spencer's got to do with the, with the war in Gaza? Ah, founders were Jews. I wonder, by the way, I mean, let's just accept, as a fact, most people are ignorant about everything, particularly about history. 
I wonder if these people even know that one of the founders who led Marks and Spencer's was the target of Carlos the Jackal in, was it 1971 or so, in London, who, who, take, who did a hit job, uh, an employed hit job, tried to kill um, one of the bosses of Marks and Spencer's because he was Jewish and did so on behalf of Palestinians. Um, can you imagine if you were a, a, a Jew who lived, let's say, three decades longer than we had, which is still not very old, you know, and had seen all of this come around, and you get a hit job for being Jewish and having a store, and even decades later, the bigots turn up outside which store, Marks and Spencer's again, um, this, this just horror of ignorance, the horror of these people who've, and I see them, I see them, I see them. They are these protesters who think they are Antifa, that they're anti-fascist, that they are anti-Nazi. If they got what they wanted, if they got what they chanted, they would fulfill Hitler's dream. And so it's one of very many reasons why these people mustn't get what they want. But imagine if they did. Imagine if they did. I wonder if these people would realize that it was them who was the Nazis, it was them that was Hitlerites. You know, I mean, we've been here again before, German politics post-war, there was one thing you were meant not to be, and that was don't be a Nazi. Uh, don't do what our parents did in Germany. You know, that was the one thing that oriented them. But there were members of the Green Left and, and others who actually ended up, partly because of the Palestinian cause, people like Joska Fischer, the old roommate, ended up organizing separations on hijacked planes of Jews and non-Jews. So, ah, done it again, done it again. Um, the whole wheel can go around like that. And we've seen that before with anti-Semitism. And we're seeing it at the moment. These people are the, 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 the marching on the streets. I'm not talking about the Muslim marches, I'm talking about the non-Muslim marches, are principally driven by a belief that they are sort of on the right side of history or doing the right thing on the side of the underdog. And they couldn't be more wrong. And I just hope and pray that they never find out the actual consequences of what their suggestion would be. And when it, when it comes to the commentariat on the left, when October the 7th happened, there was this deafening silence yeah. because it was almost like the weight of cognitive dissonance was such. They could no longer, how could they compute the idea that the, the side that they had supported had perpetrated this horrendous, set of atrocities but very quickly it discovered its voice where it sort of recoiled from the facts and the reality and fell back into its comfortable football game i support this side and israel's doing the genocide despite the fact that clearly hamas had done had tried to do so yeah that's i mean what's what is going on on the left that decent apparently decent left-wing people cannot find it in themselves to stand up for the jews only the right it seems to me at the moment is standing up for the jews what, what does it say about the left well it, it you know look it, 
there are certain things where people are willing to put up with a certain amount of atrocity in order to get to where they believe they want to go. So uh, let me say one that's, I can say it to, to you, because we're not doing this in America. This would be an unpopular point to make in America. Seems to be in America, for instance, people uh, on the right and elsewhere who are very big proponents of Second Amendment rights, gun ownership, who don't want any limitations on gun ownership, who don't want any, you know, who want as few restrictions on gun ownership as possible. Whenever a school massacre comes along, uh, they have a problem. They have a problem. And the way I see it, they've sort of built in, well, okay, these things happen and it's terrible, but it's not as terrible about, as us losing our second amendment. So, okay, that's, that's just like what they have in them. I'm not judging them. It's not my place to judge. Um, but I think something similar is happening with the people who see themselves as being pro-Palestinian. That they they believe that the reason there isn't a Palestinian state is because the Jews have stopped getting a Palestinian state. They think if they just push, push, push more, such a state will occur and peace will break out, not just in in Israel and Palestinian state, but across the Middle East. Of course, it's been a defunct, defunct proven defunct uh, version of things for many years now, not least shown by the Abraham Accords and the get around and make sure actually that the Palestinians do not have the veto power on peace in the Middle East. If there's a block that you can't unblock, you go around the block. And that's exactly what the Israelis and Americans and others did in the Abraham Accords. But if you believe that the main thing has to be um, the Palestinian state at all costs, free Gaza at all costs, and so on, something like October the 7th is just something you have to kind of get around somehow or wish away or, I mean, they'll never confront it. They'll never confront it because, I mean... Nothing arises without a context is the argument that they've been making. But yeah, and I mean, I want to know... I want to know what the context was for the Music Festival Massacre. What was the context for that? Look at these horrible young men and women on the streets of Britain marching and defending. I mean, they, many of them would have been at exactly just such a rave, you know? They could have been so easily. Um, I want to know what the context of that is. What is the context in which you can... Well, it, you can it, it, can't, it can't be the occupation because Gaza has not been occupied since 2005. And what about, you know, what about the, the, the way in which, for instance, um, People say that this is because of, I don't know, intransigence on the Israeli side. Why, why go into kibbutz where, I mean, they didn't, the terrorists of the 7th of October didn't make any differentiation between left wing and right wing. In fact, to, you know, they, they, they even killed you know, eye workers and others who were working on kibbutz. Yeah. A couple of days ago, it was in uh, near Oz, a small kibbutz of 400 people who were, more than 80 uh, were kidnapped and stolen into Gaza, and more than 30 were murdered right there. And um, uh, I, I mean, 
many of the people in this kibbutz, they are, they were left wing, peace now, or, you know, types. And many of them actually were the sorts of Israelis who really, really made a virtue of trying to uh, work with Palestinians in Gaza, boy Palestinians in Gaza, um, befriend them, help them. There was one woman who constantly would find meaning by driving Palestinian children to the hospitals and getting help for them. From Gaza. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. None of this counted for anything for the people who came door to door in that kibbutz on the morning of the 7th of October. They, they didn't care what the views of these people were. And, you know, they burned an elderly man alive in his, in his home and uh, shot everyone they could in their safe rooms. And there was one room I was in of... Um, where two teenage boys, his mother happened to be away that morning, uh, were desperately trying to keep the door of their safe room shut. And can you imagine what it's like for, I think they were 13 and 16, what it's like to be in the safe room, which of course is a safe room to, to protect, and most of the houses have one, to protect you from bombs because the bombs are so common. But the safe rooms didn't lock because they didn't expect to have to lock them from the inside. Every house, Every house, uh, you saw the struggle that had happened as the Hamas terrorists um, fought to open the door. And on this occasion, two teenage boys on the other side desperately trying to keep the handle against grown men who would then usually shoot through the door. And you would see in each place the trail of blood on the floor where they been stopped from being able to keep the door closed any longer. And this happened in house after house and room after room. And um, the Thai workers in their bit of the compound, the terrorists just went door to door. You could see from the bloodstains of the pulled out bodies that most of the story of what happened, but the bomb shelter in that part of the kibbutz. Um, a scene I would hope not very many people have to see in their lives, but uh, it seems that Hamas put the high women and men into this one bomb shelter and then massacred them all. And I think not with bullets, because there weren't many bullet holes, but just um, bludgeoned and macheted to death because the blood splatter was all over the floor, the walls, the ceiling, uh, the air conditioner, and... Um, and uh, you could see the bloodied handprints of people fighting for the last moments of their lives to get up, imprinted on the walls. <sighs> Why do I say this? Just because this is one of the things that happened, and that's one tiny part of what happened that day in one tiny community. And, you know, find me the context for that. Find me the context. I mean, the, these scenes obviously cause minds to be cast back to the Holocaust. And in your column for us this week, you made the argument that the Hamas terrorists seem to take even more, even more relish in the massacres than 
some of the Nazis had done. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, it's not an argument; it's an observation. Yeah, I don't make any argument about this because we're dealing here with <laughs> very slight fractional differences of the most pure evil that human beings have seen. So you know, yeah. that's well, I, the, I, as as we as we speak, a, a, a Twitter storm is raging about uh, we're being accused of of diminishing the horrors of the Nazis. And I mean, anyone who makes that claim is obviously either capable of deliberately trying a move. By the way, this this move is quite commonplace. Let me very quickly explain um, this. Um, it's, it's simply that having seen the raw footage of the 7th of October massacres, um, uh, uh, one thing that struck me was was the glee, uh, the glee in the terrorists' faces. They, you know, shouting Allahu Akbar gleefully with every blow of the shovel against a young Jewish man's neck till they get the head off. And um, uh, the gleefulness, I mean, one, one of these tapes has been released by the Israelis of one of the Hamas terrorists calling back to his mother and father in Gaza and saying, Father, your son has killed 10 Jews with his own hands, you know, and, you know, I've made you proud, Father, get mother on the phone. And this is a level of um, uh, evil which is, we would spend our whole lives trying to comprehend and still fail. But I was struck by the sheer glee of all the attackers. And until somebody has seen all of this, of what I've seen, what others have seen, I don't think they have the right to make a judgment on this. My observation is that I think this is a level of evil that even the Nazis didn't quite achieve. Because, as I point out in my column, I spent a lot of time studying what happened in the 1930s and 40s in Germany. And one of the things that is very striking is that some level, some level, a lot of the Nazis, members of the SS groups and the killing squads and so on, must have known they were doing something wrong. Why? Because they knew they had to try to do it in secret. You know, even when the Soviets are moving forward, you know, there must be a reason the Germans knew they had to cover over Treblinka. They didn't say, okay, world, you're coming in. We're going to show you our glorious achievements. Now, this isn't in any way, obviously, to absolve or let off the hook or diminish what the Nazis did. But it's, it's an interesting observation in my mind that the Hamas terrorists are so happy about what they're doing. So proud of what they've done. But then let me make my second very quick point about this. Twitter storms, you say, Twitter storms. Come and go, I care not a jot. But here's what these people are doing. Um, they try, the, the people who actually like celebrate the murder of Israelis, there's a horrible piece of work, I can't remember her name, but somebody at that far left thing, Navarra Media, she she celebrated the attacks of October the seventh immediately. 
gleeful about them and expressed their glee on Twitter. That turned out to be a bit much. Um, I am told that she's one of the ones who's left on my column this week in the JC. This is very commonplace. It's a tactic of a certain type of anti-Semite. What they do is um, they celebrate the murder of Jews and then when they are trying to find an exit strategy from their own disgrace, they pretend to be wildly oversensitive about any mention of Nazis. I mean, I've seen this many times. It's a, it's a play. It's a tactic. It's a trick. Um, uh, because, of course, as they say, they're simply looking for a quick exit route from their own depravity. Um, anyone who reads my column, JC, this week who can read will know exactly what I've said, and I stand by it. And, uh, um, you know, one of the things that I've said quite a lot in recent years is that one of the problems of the age of social media is that we, we until very recently, used to communicate as human beings by trying to make sure that we used our words as precisely as possible so that they couldn't be misinterpreted by any reasonable reader or actor. But we live in a new era now where unreasonable people will deliberately misinterpret and misread and misrepresent perfectly clearly worded views. That's not my problem. That's the problem of the illiterates and the anti-Semites and others who are just trying to find a way out from their own depravity. I, I find that their mewlings and their barkings don't affect me. On that note, Douglas, good luck with uh, the next period in, uh, in southern Israel. And thank you for joining us and I hope to speak to you again soon. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Israel War Briefing from the Jewish Chronicle with me, Jake Wallace-Simons. Join us next time for more insight and analysis from leading experts.